1: outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry
0: that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present their roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan
1: Somewhere out there, there is a dangerous virus that is boiling up in the bloodstream of a bird, bat, monkey, or pig, preparing to jump to a human being. It's hard to comprehend the scope of such a threat, for it has the potential to wipe out millions of us, including my family and yours, over a matter of weeks or months. The risk makes the threat posed by ISIS a ground war, a massive climate event, or even the dropping of a nuclear bomb, on a major city pale by comparison. Hello and welcome to the New Books in Medicine podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Corr. That was an excerpt from the new book, The End of Epidemics, The Looming Threat to Humanity and How to Stop It. I have with me today the author of that book, the world-renowned epidemiologist and public health expert, Dr. Jonathan Quick. Dr. Jonathan Quick, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Jeremy. Good to be here.
1: Uh, Jonathan, can you start by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, how you ended up where you are today?
0: Well, I'm a family physician by training, and um, after uh, practicing in the you know, U.S. Public Health Service in Oklahoma, uh, delivering babies and taking care of uh, gunshot wounds and snake bites, uh, I, I decided I really liked having whole countries as patients. So I went into global health, uh, worked in, uh, particularly in uh, initially in the pharmaceuticals area. Uh, joined a nonprofit, Management Sciences for Health, where I uh, lived and worked in uh, Pakistan and Kenya. I spent 10 years with the World Health Organization and um, then have just finished a decade as the uh, CEO of, of Management Science for Health. So it's been uh, a life for my family and me where I've gotten around to uh, about 70 countries and pretty much um, all, all, all of the continents except Antarctica.
1: Okay. I want to give our listeners a quick little frame of reference uh, for the rest of the show. Can you ex- please explain the difference between an outbreak, an epidemic, and a pandemic?
0: Yes. So um, an ep- epidemic is actually a, a general term, which means the, the occurrence in a community or region of illness that's beyond what you normally expect. And so it really... Uh, uh, applies to the large and, and, and small uh, events. An outbreak is indeed a localized uh, uh, epidemic, where in a town or village or or uh, um, a country you get an increase in in, 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 a, in a disease. Pandemic is is an epidemic, an unusually um, large number of cases, but over a wide area, crossing international boundaries, nor- usually affecting a large number uh, of people, and uh, often causing uh, severe disease in, 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 uh, 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 as a and, as I sex borders. And we often think of a pandemic as something that goes global.
1: Let's talk a little bit about some of the recent major epidemics, uh, SARS, Ebola, and HIV. Uh, how did they spread and, and what was their impact?
0: Well, uh, each, each, each of those is um, new over the last 100 years, and uh, they exemplify the fact that three out of four new human diseases, infectious diseases, uh, come from an animal to human uh, species jump. HIV, actually, uh, the AIDS virus, uh, actually made that jump in, in the 1920s in, in uh, southeast Cameroon, worked its way with probably through bushmeat, through e- eating monkeys. It was originally a uh, a monkey virus, a simian virus. And um, the virus made five jumps into humans before it it, it made a successful one, uh, worked its way down to the Congo. And from there, with uh, some guest workers that had been there from Haiti under the Belgian colonial government and who took it back to Haiti, it went global. So. AIDS was the first new uh, human uh, pandemic disease in, in 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 modern times. It actually took between from 1920 till 1980 until it really exploded in, in the in the world's awareness. Ebola was a virus from uh, uh, from west from East Africa, and it um, it the first outbreak was was several decades ago. There had been uh, uh, over 20 outbreaks of Ebola over the years between its discovery and night in the uh, 2014 West Africa outbreak, and those were all taken care of very fairly, um, uh, fairly quickly with less than a few hundred cases. E- Ebola. It is a uh, is a virus that uh, hmm. typically is the reservoir, the place where, where it, it's held in nature is, is bats. and when humans come in contact with with bat uh, excretion or or, um, or or eating bats as a, as a bush meat that's how you get it. Um, so that was um, that got out of control in West Africa for a variety of reasons that we, we can talk about. Uh, SARS was actually the first new pandemic of the the 21st century. 2003, a, a totally um, unknown virus appeared in China. A businessman, Chinese businessman, carried it um, uh, from from uh, rural China. And this uh, virus that was in a, a bat uh, got transmitted to a, a food delicacy animal called a civet was eaten and that virus was carried by this uh, this uh, traveler to the uh, ninth floor of the Metropolitan uh, Hotel in Hong Kong. And from there, it spread in a matter of weeks to 27 countries. Um, SARS is a good example of what happens when you do everything right. Because this previously unknown virus, for which we had no diagnosis, no medicine, no treatment, with rapid, decisive public health action, was... Uh, Put back in the box in six months and um, hasn 't had a, a an outbreak uh, of significance since then so th- three examples of the, of, new, of new pathogens that are in nature, new viruses that make a, a uh, animal to human jump and then cause uh, a major disease uh, outbreak, which eventually in the case of of AIDS became a horrific uh, global pandemic.
1: Uh, now I, I'd like for you to talk about the big one, uh, the 1918 Spanish flu. Uh, can you tell us uh, h- how bad was it? How and why did it get so bad? And what were some of the failures that caused it to get so bad?
0: Well, this is this is an interesting uh, flu virus. Most of the flu seems to come out of Asia. This is one wherever it originated. It got started actually in Kansas and was carried by, by um, um, by troops from, initially from Fort there to, to Europe, and from Europe, this was right at the end of World War II, in the, in the final, uh, sorry, World War I. Right in the final months of World War I, the, uh, the flu, this flu virus got started, uh, went to Europe, and from there went, went global. In the end, um, over a two-year period, it killed 5,200 million people, um, infected a, a large share of the world's population, um, and, and not, um, not to, uh, had a huge knock on the global economy. And I think there were, there were a variety of factors that made it so deadly. One was the uh, wide variation in public health systems and, and response so the the u s had already pretty good public health measures uh, we had by then eradicated smallpox in the u s with with good public health response and even within the u s we had a twofold difference between uh different cities on the um in the mortality rate N- New York responded quickly and decisively uh, isolated th- those who were infected and um canceled major events. Pittsburgh, which acted slowly, was hit a lot harder. Um, and globally, a lot of uh, countries just didn't have the sort of of uh, response mechanism and prevention mechanisms that that we had. It was also hitting a population that had been more ravaged and and suffered from uh, malnutrition. so there were there were a variety of factors. The, the other factor was that, it was a virus and, and this is key for flu pandemics. It was a virus that was a new flu virus. It was it was highly deadly, highly contagious because we didn't have any immunity. It was a flu virus that that, that we had seen in, in decades. So we didn't have immunity. And and the second thing is that it was a strain that was particularly uh, daily with, with people in the, in the 20 to 50 age range. So there were a variety of factors that made it both very contagious and and very deadly.
1: I know when I was reading the portion of the book about the Spanish flu, I I was thinking the same thing that a lot of the listeners probably are right now. That was a hundred years ago. Technology and healthcare both come so far since then. Is it even possible for an epidemic to get that bad now?
0: I'm, a, I'm afraid so. For one thing, the flu virus is just as wild, just as mercurial. And uh, we have the nature of the flu virus is it travels in packs. It's not just one virus. Typically, in the flu season, there are three or four it 's constantly mutating and also trading genes with each other, so you'll have avian flu genes, uh, swine flu genes, human flu genes that are mixing and matching and um, and, and then you 've got the fact that it 's a more primitive kind of genetic material, uh, RNA as opposed to DNA, so it doesn 't self correct or self edit some of its its mutations what What is really worrisome in terms of the flu virus is that we are constantly seeing these these outbreaks, particularly of avian flu, which has mortality rates when it gets to humans of of, of often fifty percent. Now we've been really fortunate in that they these have not caused widespread human outbreaks because they they haven't been able to to replicate and cause a sort of of. Um, human-to-human human transition that will cause a pandemic. But we're really at risk of that. And with, with 19 billion chickens on, on the planet, uh, they they really become pandemic incubators, so uh, potential pandemic incubators, and certainly incubators of, of serious outbreaks in, in poultry, which that mutation, and, and some experts say we're only a couple mutations away from that um that H5N1, highly pathogenic uh, uh, chicken virus, becoming uh, infectious and among humans. So that's one factor. The other factor is that flu, people say, well, we have antibiotics now and, and flu actually kills mostly by the pneumonia it causes, uh, which, it, which is true, but we, we are getting more and more antimicrobial resistance. And when we look at the health systems worldwide uh, they're, they're not as as prepared, but the bigger thing is, we are uh, twice as urban as we were 100 years ago. We're four times the population, and we're 50 times more
1: mobile. So the potential to spread is 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 dramatic. In the book, you know, a lot of the experts you mentioned say that the question isn't if, but when the next major global pandemic will occur. Uh, how likely do you think a pandemic on that scale is, uh, and what would you consider the worst case scenario to be in terms of death toll as well as social and economic impact?
0: We tend to get influenza uh, pandemics at a cycle of, of, and it varies. You know, t- typically maybe every every four decades when we have a huge share of the population that doesn't have any natural immunity, and we we. We don't predict well on on the vaccine, um, so so we we're, we're really we're really at risk, and I, I think that could happen any any time now. Um, I, I think the when when you uh, run a scenario, and the uh, Bill Gates has run a scenario that um, uh, takes a, a, a conservative scenario, within a hundred days, the death toll would be three quarters of a million people. That's like a really bad flu year. Within 100 days, uh, uh, three quarters of a million people. Within 200 days, it would be 33 million people because of this exponential impact of, of the spread. If we had a, um, a virus like 1918 and we had the same uh, rate of infection and mortality rate, it would be 200 to 400 million people. And, and that's, that's not out of the question. The, the other factor is that it's not just the pneumonia that kills people, which provided we, we we are not having a resistant pneumonia can be treated. There's also a reaction that is more common, it appears to be more common in in um, um, in the 20 to 50 age range, which is an, a, uh, an over-response to the immune system, something called a cytokine storm or sea storm. And that needs an intensive care unit to be treated. And we don't have enough intensive care units. So there, there are a number of factors that, that make the potential impact really dramatic.
1: What, where, where do you think this next epidemic could come from? What are some of the likely sources?
0: We need to be realistic that it could appear anywhere. So, for example, most most of the, the uh, flu viruses tend to, tend to come from, from Asia. But as, as I've uh, pointed out, the, the, the 1918 flu actually got started in Kansas. The 2009 got started in, in uh, Mexico and California, the swine flu of 2009. And so virus itself, because flu viruses are kind of on the move, May have originated someplace else, but the actual outbreak and the start of it could could come really in in, in you know, Latin America as we saw with, with with the explosion of Zika. It could come from Africa as as we have seen with Ebola and and, and as we now know um, AIDS. It could come from Asia. Uh, so it really could appear anywhere, and and the thing that is really disturbing is that only one out of three countries worldwide have the ability to rapidly detect and and respond so we have we have lots of places around the world where these viruses can could get started and would would not be detected and and that's that's when it's really really dangerous i mentioned the sars virus the uh, 2003 first pandemic of this the potential pandemic of this century, that was probably a couple of plane flights away from getting into Africa or parts of Asia where where the response wasn't good, and that could still wouldn't have been good, and, and that could still be with us today. If we, so, we 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 are we are vulnerable, and it really could come from anywhere.
1: Now now one of the things you talk about in the book is 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 bioterror and bioair as well as you know factory farms and these being you know some of the likely scenarios that a a, a new, you know, epidemic could come from. I, you know, it's 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 crazy to me. I, I felt like I could not necessarily relate, but understood, you know, the the factory farming portion of it. I grew up in rural Iowa, and, and the hog confinements, the factory farming, is everywhere. You can't drive more than five minutes, and the smell is something from those that you'll you'll never forget if you've ever been close to one. And the crazy thing about them is they're, you know, a lot of people when I travel from, you know, from big cities think of, you know, they think of the Midwest as your traditional family farm. It's not that way anymore. They're almost all factory farms.
0: Yeah, indeed. And um, factory farm, well, well well-managed, well-regulated factory farms are probably a relatively low risk. But, uh, But they don't. Um, but that's the consistency and, and, and the level of, of care, because the key thing is if you've got, if you've got uh, poultry or you've got, you've got something that are basically sharing the same air as people handling them, uh, that's where you get the, the, the risk of, of spread. It's, it's also a problem in terms of, of um, the development of antimicrobial resistance. So we, we talk about the bush, the bio, barn, and the bioterrorist. The bush we've really talked about, and that is these dumps that come from 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 animals, um, uh, from, from monkeys or, or or bats or other animals. Um, and the barn, of course, is the the um, uh, factory farms and and even small scale farms. You can get bioterror is is really concerning because the availability of technology now is is such that you could pretty much make a, a smallpox virus from 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 scratch and um, and we we know from from computers seized from Isis terrorists they have full- fledged plans and can describe in in very very Clear detail how they would infect a major population center with the with anthrax, with with um, uh, with 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 other other sorts of uh, pandemic viruses. We know that uh, the South uh, the uh, South Korean Department of Defense believes that that North Korea has capability. They, they they have in their possession 12 pandemic viruses including smallpox and anthrax they to our knowledge have not started weaponizing them but their track record in weaponizing when they decide to is is is, is very disturbing so so th- this is this is a a, a significant threat it, let me just say something about bioerror and that is there are labs that are developing superbugs that uh, viruses that that they develop highly pathogenic viruses and study how to develop vaccines against these viruses, and they have high levels of security, but we have we have scores of examples of high-level security labs who have, who have accidentally, one, accidentally sent anthrax. Uh, on a U.S. Army lab accidentally sent anthrax to several states and several countries, so These are concerns that warrant a lot of of careful oversight to be sure that we we don't become the the victims of of bioerror.
1: You know, I'll be honest with you when I say that I I found the beginning part of your book to be pretty terrifying. Um, I was actually reading it on an airplane when I was traveling, which is literally probably the worst place to read a book of this subject matter, considering, you know, how germ-filled airports and airplanes are. Um, I was actually at a conference, and I had a colleague text me on her way home and say, Jeremy, the kid in front of me on the airplane is coughing so hard he's gagging. I feel bad for him, but all I can think about is that book you were telling me about that you're reading. Diseases and epidemics are are scary stuff, but but your book and and what I liked about it the most was that it's a book of hope. You put together an action plan that you call uh, the Power of Seven. That's that's meant to literally end epidemics. What's the concept behind it, and what are the seven actions?
0: So one one point on the uh, end of epidemics. So I want to be clear: there always are going to be local disease outbreaks. So epidemics with a small E that um and that's just nature. The bugs will always be there. What what I believe that we could do is make the world much, much safer for these really catastrophic epidemics and pandemics uh, like the the um what we've seen, what we saw what we've seen with AIDS, uh with uh with Zika as it spread and with influenza. So we stepped back and we looked at hundred years of pandemics and said, "What what do we learn? And, and what are the big levers to really prevent and and effectively respond? And it really comes down to this: this power of seven. Number one is 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 leadership, decisive leadership that gets the plot. During during World War One, President Wilson refused to acknowledge the influenza epidemic." despite appeals from the the head of uh, the the head medical officer with the us military and his own personal doctor and probably contributed to uh, to um, uh, to that to that uh, epidemic sars is an example where we had decisive action on the part of the world health organization the the director general of the world health organization dr gro bruhlin had been prime minister of norway at a young age uh, ran the the environment work for the UN and came into the World Health Organization. Was convinced by the infectious disease people to build a good response system and acted decisively and stopped SARS in, in, in its foot in its tracks. Whereas we saw with Ebola that there there was uh, there was really a a, a delay and and. Not that sort of decisiveness, and that's where what could have been a, a small and rapidly contained outbreak really took off. So decisive leadership is number one. Second thing is basic strong health systems, the ability to prevent, detect, and respond in every country. We're not talking about every country having, you know, high-tech top-end labs, but, but having the basics of being able to to prevent and um, and respond and detect. And that's a matter of training, and it's a matter of mobilizing at all levels so that people, community health workers, on up. The, the third thing is the, the active prevention immunization programs. In, in this country, only a, a, uh, about half of people at risk for, for influenza are getting, getting the influenza vaccine. And so, so the, this kind of awareness of prevention is really critical.
1: I would say one thing I, I wanted to ask you here, I think now is a, a decent time to ask you, but, you know, in your book, you call vaccines our most powerful protect, protection. Uh, you know, Jonas Salk, for example, he, he, he literally reached celebrity status for his work with polio vaccine, for his work on the polio vaccine and the impact it had. I, I, I want to know, uh, what is your message to the, the modern and very vocal, especially on social media, anti-vaccine movement in the U.S.?
0: Well, that it's interesting. That takes actually to the fourth area, which which we call timely truths and fatal fictions. So, every mother wants the best for their child, and that I understand. And and they don't want a, a child with autism. But we really we really have to, from the earliest ages in education, get people to understand how to separate truth from, from fiction. And the the person who started that, the the autism, the vaccine autism myth, Andrew Wakefield, that that article was published 20 years ago last month. We've actually written about this. He is still active. And and actually the most recent measles outbreak in in Europe, which Europe has Europe, like the US, was on the way to eliminating measles. They had twenty over 20,000 cases last year. And the when, when we look at the footprint of uh, the, the work of Andrew Wakefield and his his ideas in the media there, there is a, a direct relation to to the fall in, in, in vaccine um, and immunization. So there are a couple of things that that are, are important there. One is, and California has, has demonstrated this, with their response to, to measles outbreaks there. We really do need some basic good public health regulations and, and laws. Um, we also need to um, help people, mothers, to understand that um, uh, the benefits of vaccine and to, to address some of the myths, but also w- we need to continue the research on, on autism and say, communicate more about what is causing autism and what learns what, what and what we've learned about um, what, what the causes are. And, um, and finally, we've learned that, and this is really critical, the messenger can be much more important than the message. So if I hold a, a belief really dearly and closely, and you try to convince me with facts, I'll just hold on to that belief more closely. It's called the backfire effect. So what you need is people who are trusted. The story about Ebola in West Africa that we've heard in the West is mostly a story of failure. Health systems that were a mess and everything else. The story that isn't told is how quickly, once the people in the communities understood Ebola, how quickly the, the, the outbreak ended. It was it was very impressive. And the way they did it, we tell a story in in the end of epidemics from Sierra Leone where where they they weren't doing well with just the facts on the radio and all that. When they went and talked to the religious leaders, the 4000 market women, the traditional healers and and others in the community they got the message, they were trusted, and they sent the message out, and behaviors changed rapidly. So so that's the, that's the fourth. That communication area is the fourth part of the Power of Seven. Um, the, the fifth is is innovation, and we identify five game-changing innovations. One of the most important ones is is the, the flu vaccine. The, the Jonas Salk also was developed... The first flu vaccine was part of developing the first flu vaccine. That's where he got the the experience that led him to develop polio, and it was 1938. It was 80 years ago. We're still making flu vaccine basically the same trial and error way, and and growing it the same slow chicken egg way as we were 80 years ago, and so we we. Are just now in, in the last really five years, working to get a a much better flu vaccine and to produce it in in a much better way, but we need innov- we need some innovations in terms of vaccines, medicines, diagnostics, early warning systems. So, so uh, that's that's number five. Number six is we've got to invest. There is a cycle where when we have a SARS, or an avian flu, or a swine flu, or an Ebola. Lots of promises are made for funding and everything else, but when you go back a few years down the line, we we have health services that have been, de- de- uh, research programs that have been defunded, de-staffed. It's, it's, it's this complacency. We go between panic and, and neglect. So we need to keep up the investment. It's not a big investment in the scheme of things, it amounts to a dollar per person per year extra for the next couple of decades seven and a half a in a year with the, the largest share of that goes for building the health systems the the epidemic response capability in countries and then a share of investment in a, in a pretty modest share for rapid emergency response
1: I was say in your book you talk about you know just how bad an epidemic can be for the economy in terms of you know both both cost to you know to deal with it as well as how much it can disrupt the economy. Can you talk about that versus the 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 the, the, the expense spent on the preventative work?
0: Yeah, uh yes. Yeah. It's it's there's this epidemic cascade where we have the, the direct impact of of a of an outbreak or a uh, pandemic, and and then the, the avoidance behavior. So that together has a huge impact on on the health system. In the U.S., we could have three or four million people turned away in a severe pandemic. With um, uh, we also saw with with Ebola, is almost as many deaths from from AIDS, TB, malaria, because the health system wasn't working. Kids out of school. Businesses lose. The, Mexico lost five billion in you know, tourism with with SARS in Asia. The companies were put out of business, and so it's it's the worst case scenario is a hit of of three and a half trillion to the global economy, which is about what what the Great Recession was in, in two thousand and eight, and and that puts that puts millions of people out of out of work, and it has a huge health impact. So it's it's both the economics and, and the, then the human impact of these of these epidemics. So that that leads so that investment is critical, and I think that the, uh, it's, it's critical, it's, it's both public and private. And, and then the seventh element is, is advocacy one of the things that we learned from from aids is that it really it really took a committed group of advocates to keep ringing the, the alarm on on the, on the outbreak and one of one of the questions i asked uh, dr Brooklyn, the who director general that that mounted the sars response was what made her decide to to build the Infectious disease response system, what made her decide to invest in that? And she said, they made the case. The infectious disease people made the case. She said, look, a lot of people, when you're in a position of leadership, everybody comes to you with their asks. And the difference in terms of investing in in infectious disease preparedness with WHO, is that they made the case. So what we need to do as as citizens, as health professionals, as researchers, is we need to keep making the case over and over again for for the importance of the investment. We're in a situation at in in March of 2018 where we have just invested the. the the, the governments and foundations of the world just invested over five years in a significant program to increase the responsiveness and ability of countries in epidemic prevention and, and, and preparedness. And now we're, we're talking with, within um, within the U.S. about pulling back our funding on that, which is which is really just uh, just madness in the sense that there's no question that it will cost more in human lives and, and economically to, to stop this effort in building prevention than to, to keep putting a fairly amount what is amounts to really a fairly modest amount of investment in. So we, we need to keep the, the, the alarm sounded One of our partners in uh, with a book is a group called uh, global citizens. Um, the, the end of epidemics of, uh, website has, has links to them. Uh, there are, there are other advocacy groups. So one campaign and uh, trust for America's health that, that really are good sources of data and information. So, so that's number seven is, is advocacy and really, really keeping the awareness so that um, all the other things that need to happen
1: continue to happen between the, the headline grabbing outbreaks. Right. So you know, you mentioned those headline Grammy outbreaks. One of my concerns is, is is similar to the way you know we view terrorism, where you know if fifty of them are prevented and stopped, no one knows, no one cares. That doesn't get the headlines. But you know, when one does, it's devastating. The fingers point, and that's when people really buy in and care, not on the downtimes.
0: Well, yes, and 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 those become teachable moments, and. That's why we've we've made a point of trying to take the lessons and the current experience with this year's flu outbreak, this year's flu epidemic, to, to uh, write in, in Time Magazine about our, our flu complacency illness, and in the Wall Street Journal about an action plan. And so I think we do need to to when these when these events which are horrific at the time. Happen with, with Ebola or or with Zika or with the with the annual well severe flu outbreaks. Um, we need to remind people that you know this this is this is the reality that we face if we don't keep going on the process of developing developing the tools that we need. Uh, to, to uh, prevent and, and respond.
1: Now, one, one of the things I want to talk to you about a little bit is in your book, you, you you talk about social media being essentially a double-edged sword in terms of, you know, A, the spread of misinformation, but it can also be used as a, as a tool for, for good. Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
0: Uh, I can we know, we saw back with Ebola and we've seen evidence again, again now that people will, will trust social media and they'll believe – Frank, frank falsehoods on social media before they believe social sources. That's really, really problematic. At the same time, we social media gives us a window into what people are thinking and what the false beliefs are. So good communication is both getting the correct information out and in believed, and countering the, the unhelpful beliefs, and, or, or in, in fact, dangerous beliefs. So during... Uh, the West Africa God break, for example, with uh, with Ebola, Nigeria and others used the social media to understand what people were 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 believing, and then to provide the the counter information. And so that's that's really part of double double edged sword. In order to get the maximum benefit and minimize the the adverse effects, we we need. As I said earlier, we need to begin at an early age to help people to understand how you ferret out the truth from all of these all of these statements and, and, um, and just um, you know unfounded unfounded advice that people give. Uh,
1: you know, just to tell a, a good story. You know, can you tell us a, a little bit about uh, Ethiopia's fight against AIDS?
0: Well, Ethiopia is um, one of the poorest countries. They set out, the the former minister of health there, Dr. Tedros, who's now director general of the World Health Organization, he really set out a vision for covering the whole country with with um, extension workers and a vision of universal coverage of, of basic health care. So, so that was the foundation. And then with... Um, at the, at the time, back in the back in the mid two thousands, up up until kind of two thousand up to two thousand nine, AIDS prevention and treatment, particularly treatment, tended to be hospital based. And what what Ethiopia said, with the support of of U.S. government, and we were fortunate in management sciences for health to help, is to envision a community based prevention and treatment. So we, when you medicalize these these infectious diseases and have it hospital oriented and doctor oriented, you you you, you're, you can't be effective. You have to get out in, into the community. And what we found was by taking prevention and treatment closer to the community, the adherence to treatment was better. And we have learned that treatment is prevention, and it also enlisted. We enlisted HIV positive uh, volunteers, community outreach workers, to to really carry the message. So it was a it was a a whole of society response that in those that were affected in, in a very positive way.
1: What will the ideal future be if we, as as humankind, buy into and act on your power of seven? Uh, and how realistic do you think it is that we can end you know these major epidemics
0: i think that we can we certainly can do make tremendous progress in in reducing the uh, the odds of of a major pandemic and really catastrophic pandemics the first thing is building the capability of each country to see a new disease outbreak ask the question this isn't normal rapidly respond. And we know that basic public health responses, even without a vaccine, without medicine, without high tech, isolating, identifying and isolating quickly, that alone will control, and actually every year does control, hundreds of outbreaks. So that's number one. It could be really effective. The The second thing is to have a population that's really educated in, in good, good health practices and all. And if we really invest in a better flu vaccine, if we invest in vaccine technologies for the other, the World Health Organization has a has a list of about eight target viruses that we really need to uh, develop vaccines against. I over the next, it would take a couple of decades, but if we work in all of these areas, we, we can substan- We can first of all eradicate some of the diseases, eliminate some of the diseases that we have, like. Um, uh, measles, um, uh, AIDS, and and, and all. Um, so I, I'm conf- I'm confident that that we can make the world substantially safer if we really keep on the the investment, the innovation. Education, the public, and the basic health systems that we need.
1: And I'll say, I love your book. Uh, what can you know? What are some of the big things that you know? People like me and our listeners, you know, your average everyday citizen. Uh, what can we do to help you with the power of seven? And how can we, you know, what can we do to help you with this whole process?
0: Well, so it's really helping yourselves and your communities. I, I think first of all to recognize that we're we're all we're all. Vulnerable. We we are not in a world that is free of these of these diseases, and e- even if we have been fortunate to have good health, we've seen this year weightlifters, marathoners, people who thought they were in good health, end up dying from the flu. Um, I had a colleague whose um, six-year-old son uh, classmate died of flu. Healthy kid. So, so I think be recognizing, being humble about it—that we're, we're all at risk—and then um, one is within your own uh, communities, within your within your schools, within your place of work, and all. Ask the question: um, Are we prepared? So, are, are we at least once a year having some sort of a, uh, a um, an exercise where we're we're at least reminding ourselves what is our response plan for major outbreaks? Um, and a uh, major flu or, or worse and um are, for particularly for health facilities are we um, are, are, have we thought through how to handle the surge and updated our our processes so so that's one is, is personal um the second is with your public your state budgets and with the national budgets I mean track and through uh, through Trust for America's Health, or through one campaign, or through through others, let your congressman know that you, you support the investment. The the there there are bills in Congress to fully fund developing a universal flu vaccine, and it's a very much investment. So that's 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 the second part of it, and. Also, look in on Global Citizen. Go to GlobalCitizen.org and, and see what they're uh, up to, trying to push the, the country, the G20, the, the leaders of the uh, large countries around the world to to, to, to keep their promises, because there have been enough promises made to fight pandemics. It's keeping those promises that's, that's really important.
1: Well, Dr. Quick, I, I've taken up enough of your time today. I, I do want to ask you the uh, traditional final question. Uh, what are you working on now?
0: So, at this point the the next thing for me is to keep keep ringing the bell on the 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 threat of pandemics. I think it's clear that the threat is is real and significant. The uh, scientific and public health community knows what to do. they know what's needed, but we're moving too slowly slowly with too few resources. So, I will continue to do interviews to to write. And to promote these ideas here and in in Europe and in, and in Asia and throughout the world, because I think we're at risk and we can make a world that's safer for ourselves, our children and our children's children.
1: All right. Perfect. Well, I, I'd love to have you back on the show uh, and, and stay in touch with you. Thank you for your time today and, uh, and have a great day. OK, thank you, Jeremy.